Hey, we're spending the summer inside the Psalms, and this is the first in a series of messages that we've called Pilgrim Prayer, the Psalms being the rich prayer and worship repository of God's people in the Old Testament. And I'm going to be honest with you, the Psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 42 and 43, there are moments when it's going to feel like you're reclining on a therapist's couch as you listen to it, and and that's okay. That's one of the things that God's Word can do for us. By the way, it looks like two psalms, 42 and 43. It's actually one psalm. At least from what we can tell, these two chapters really belong together as one. They have the same structure. They end in the same refrain, that recurring line, Why are you downcast, O my soul? For whatever reason, sometimes we don't always understand. Sometimes chapter markers get stuck in there in the middle. This isn't really two psalms. This is one psalm. So we'll we'll address it that way, and and you'll you'll pardon me if I call it the psalm instead of the pair of them. We're going to go through this, which is arguably one of the most famous, one of the most beautiful, one of the most practical and wise psalms addressing the issue of despair. I mean, this is a psalm that just deals with the harsh and sometimes brutal reality that we go through these seasons in life of absolute despondency, of darkness and and desolation. What do you do in the middle of those kind of times? David Martin Lloyd-Jones is a formidable British preacher. He was one of the masters of the craft in the 20th century. He did a remarkable job of opening up this passage. Before he was a pastor, he was a medical doctor. And so he came to it with a kind of doctor's mindset, and he diagnoses, and you'll find this outline in your notes, he diagnoses a condition that's here outlined in the psalm, and, and then provides a series of of, if you would like, causes or precursors or triggers. What is it that brings it on? And then, and this is the rich part of it, he he opens up the Psalms as a cure. So we're going to follow that outline if we could. First, the condition. There are times, the author says, when when we go through these these moments of disconnectedness and despair, to be downcast, that's the word that I think you have in your Bible, in the translation, at least in the chairs in front of you. That word downcast is a very, very strong word. In Hebrew, it means actually to be dissolved, to be, to be crumpled up, just to collapse completely. It's a metaphor for absolute despair when you give up, when your will to go on has collapsed completely. So let's just start by saying this, the psalm. And the Bible in general is remarkably honest about the reality of these kind of things in our lives. Sometimes life is just raw. And, and there's, no, there's no point in trying to sugarcoat it or pretend that it doesn't happen. And there's no point in trying to pretend that it only happens to spiritual midgets, to the immature, to those who are not very far along in their walk. It happens to the giants of faith as well. For example, 1 Kings 19 talks about Elijah. Elijah, that mighty prophet of the Old Testament. Elijah had just gone through one of the great triumphs of his ministry. And nevertheless, he is plunged into this time of absolute emotional and psychological despair. He goes out into the desert. He sits under a broom tree. And this is what he prays. He says to God, 1 Kings 19, take my life, Lord. Let me die. Numbers chapter 11. 
Moses offers almost word for word the same prayer. Take my life, Lord. Let me die. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah says, take my life, Lord. Just kill me now. Notice something important. All these men, they had this sense that it wasn't for them to take their own lives. Nevertheless, they're saying to God, we've got nothing left. We don't see the reason for being here anymore. We find it hard to go on. That's what it means to be downcast. And that little English word, downcast, probably just doesn't capture it. I'm spent. I'm crumpled up. I'm blown away. I'm dissolved. I just can't go on. And remember, this is, this is Elijah. This is Moses. This is Jonah. These aren't spiritually immature people. These are the heroes of our faith. And even they go through despondency. So I think it's honest and fair and real to say that it's okay that we do too. And it doesn't matter how well you're living or not. Everybody at some point in life will find themselves in this situation. And here in the psalm, in 42-43, it's a very specific kind of despondency. It's a spiritual condition. And you get at it when you see not just what's there, but what's not there. But let's look at it. Three times it says, my soul longs for you. I pant for you. Any dog owners here? Yeah? You know what it's like when a dog pants, right? I mean, it looks like they're coming apart. I mean, they look crazy, right? My soul pants for you. I, I thirst for you. As a deer pants, so my soul longs for you. The next phrase, it says again, my soul thirsts for you. Dehydration. Thirst. It'll make you crazy. I mean, quite literally, it will make you crazy. And remember, the world of the Bible knows what an arid climate is like. These are people who knew the desert. And they knew that dehydration, dying of dehydration, was absolute agony. The word pant means to yearn. I mean, to yearn deeply, poignantly, in an agonizing way. And so you have the the writer of the psalm saying, I am agonizing here, thirsting after what? After God himself. How will I come to the living God? He actually says, where can I go to meet God? Literally, when can I get face to face with God? As you peel back the layers, I think you you get a sense of what's happening here in the life of this despondent writer. He believes in God. And yet, for whatever reason, in this moment of despair, God is no longer real to him. He wants an experience of the living God, but he doesn't feel like God is anywhere nearby. I want the reality of God. I don't want to believe in God just as an abstraction. I want to sense his presence. I want his faith. But for me, it feels like that's all gone. The only God that I know is an absent God. It's a spiritual condition, spiritual dryness, if you call it. A sense of being deserted by God. God just isn't there. That feeling. That feeling of being alone, of being abandoned or deserted. Sometimes it goes along with other things, but sometimes it doesn't. And this is important. Sometimes in the Psalms, you'll get expressions like the one in this Psalm. My tears have fed me day and night. That agony, that despondency. And then you'll get the explanation. The psalmist is going through guilt and shame. They've made poor choices. They're suffering through the consequences of devastating decisions. I've sinned against you, Lord. I've sinned in your sight. 
But there's no sign of that here. Not in Psalm 42 or 43. Sometimes you get that language. Again, I'm alone in my tears and my despair. And then it goes on to talk about tragedy and suffering. This is is unmistakable and unexplainable tragedy and calamity that happens in life. There's no talk about that. We've got lots of Psalms that say, there's an invading army that's encroaching in around me. My people have been killed. My city lies in ruins. They've sacked Jerusalem. God, where are you? Why are you letting this happen? Again, no talk of that here. There's a little bit of a reference to the enemies, but the only thing we learn about the enemies in this Psalm is that they're laughing at him while he's in despair. In other words, you can feel deserted by God and alone in seasons of guilt and shame, where you're living through the consequences of your own poor decisions. You can feel those same emotions when you're living through just absolute tragedy and and times of suffering in your life. But sometimes, neither of those are present, and it's just despair. And it's not accountable for by the circumstances of your life. I want you to see that it's possible to be doing everything right, like Elijah or or Moses, and still go through those times where God just doesn't feel real. Have you ever been there? What do you do when you feel that sense of abandonment? The Bible teaches that, that not only those who acknowledge God as being real go through this, it applies equally to people who don't acknowledge God at all. It says that that human beings need God spiritually the same way our bodies need water physically. And when we don't have water, we're dazed, we're disoriented, dehydrated. If we don't have that connection with God, there's an emptiness, disorientation, dislocation. It's very profound. And we know the symptoms. People who live within the community of God, people who live far outside the awareness of God, we know these symptoms. There is this condition this despondency, and it can happen to everyone, and it does. And when it does happen, we need to be able to assess why and then what to do. So that's the condition. Follow through on the notes then. What are the causes? We're going to look at a series of triggers, three of them in fact, but then we'll talk about the root cause. It's underneath all of them. Here's the first. Verse 4 says, These things I remember. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise. And then read ahead, verse 6. And I'll remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. You see what's going on here? The rhythms of worship and Christian community have been disrupted for this man. We don't know exactly what's happened, but it looks like he moved. He moved away from the familiar place where he worshipped, surrounded by the familiar friends that he worshipped with. Actually, you know what? This happens a lot. Young people, the most dangerous time in the spiritual journey of a person into adulthood is when you move away and you go to school or you start a job for the very first time. And I hope you know how much your pastors and your small group leaders and the the youth ministry team and staff, how much we pray for you when that's happening. It shouldn't be the case, but it often is the case that being dislocated from all of those familiar patterns has a devastating effect on our spiritual lives. And I'm not sure exactly why, but let me give you one suggestion. 
Why is that? A practical tip. At the beginning of our Christian lives, I think a lot of time our relationship with God is maybe more second-hand than we like to imagine that it is. That we tend to experience the vibrancy and the vitality of God, not only through the lens of our own lives, but also through the experience of other people around us who seem to be so alive to all of this and so excited about it. God seems more real to me because I'm surrounded by other people for whom God is real. And then I get pulled away from that and God seems less real. Imagine reaching into a fireplace, taking a burning hot coal and removing it from the fire and setting it over here on the hearth and then just watching over time as the light and heat goes out of it. This happens. It's one of the triggers for this state of of dryness. And it happens because it takes time to establish our relationship with God with the same depth and certainty that we'd experienced when we were all together. So that's one trigger, that the patterns of, of worship and community that were so important had been disruptive. Here's another one, the environment. Verse 10, my foes, my enemies, they taunt me. They say, all to, me, they say to me all day long, where's your God? Now here we're not talking so much about worship and fellowship. We're, we're talking about the culture in which we live. And so just to be even-handed, let me put it like this. If you're living in a very conservative, religious, traditional environment where everybody believes, a family where everybody has faith, then likely you're going to take all of that for granted. Hey, that's just what everybody believes. Then you come to a place like the GTA or a university campus where people are very skeptical about faith and about Christianity in particular these days. You're surrounded by people, colleagues and teachers and friends, who think you're crazy for believing any of this. And boy, that can start to wear you down, because frankly, if you're around people every day who think you're crazy, you start to believe that you are crazy, right? So, I mean... This, this environment around us, the external environment, is, is one of the other things that can start to make God feel unreal, despondency. First, there's that dislocation in, in Christian relationships and worship. Second, there's the, the external, the unencouraging environment. Here's the third thing. There are physical conditions that we cannot ignore. Have a look in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. What an interesting expression, right? rhetorical expression. But at the most basic level, you know what he's saying? I'm not eating. My tears have been my food day and night. I've lost my appetite. The only thing entering my stomach is the tears rolling down my cheeks. And actually, I'm not sleeping either. I'm up all night crying. He's downcast. He's lost his appetite. He's struggling with insomnia. At that point, you recognize all the signs of what people today would call a state of depression. There it is. So let me bring you back to Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, Christian physician, before he became a pastor, medical doctor, and a pretty good one, working at a high level. When he reads this passage, when he's preaching on it, he does something very interesting. Let me read you just a couple sentences from him. He says, physical conditions do play a part in all of this. It's difficult to draw lines here. There are some physical conditions that promote depression. There are some in whose cases it is clear to me 
that the cause of their depression is mainly physical. On the other hand, when you're physically weak, you are more prone to attacks of spiritual discouragement and depression. And if you recognize that the physical may be partly responsible for the spiritual condition, if you make allowances for this, you'll be better able to deal with spiritual issues. This is what he's doing. He's a very good pastor, and he's a physician. And he knows that depression, that all the experiences of being downcast, it's a complex thing. You have a physical nature, but you also have a spiritual nature. You have a moral nature. You have an emotional nature. And they're all involved when you go into darkness. They're all involved when you get downcast. And you cannot reduce the solution to just one of those things. They all have to get treated. So he goes on. He says, only if you realize that, yes, maybe you do need to change your diet. Maybe you do need nutrition. Maybe you do need medicine. You do need some physical treatment that will put you in a position where you can also deal with the spiritual issues. It's not all physical, but it's not all spiritual either. And I think we need to say, if we're honest, that sometimes Christians, sometimes the church, in our desire to do the right thing, often reduce it to just one thing. I'm really depressed, we say to our Christian brother or sister. I think you need to pray harder. Have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed sin in your life? Have you claimed the promises? Have you rebuked Have you rebuked the devil? Have you pleaded the blood? Like, if you do these things, you ought to be fine. Kind of reducing it, saying this is a moral issue. You just need to repent and then get back on the stick. No consideration of what's going on physically. No consideration of what's going on emotionally. The the need to be surrounded by love or encouragement. On the other hand, remember 1 Kings 19? We we reference it because that's the story of Elijah sitting there under the broom tree saying, Lord, I'm done. Take my life. Kill me now. God responds to that. That that would be a remarkable chapter to go read this afternoon. 1 Kings chapter 19. What does God do? He sends a messenger, sends an angel. And the first thing that happens when the messenger arrives is Elijah sleeps. Most of you have struggled with depression. You know what a gift that is. Real, lasting, therapeutic sleep. And then what does he do? While Elijah is sleeping, he cooks him a meal. I wonder what he made. How much paprika went in there? We, we, we want to know. But... And when the meal is ready and Elijah wakes, the angel says, I know you're tired. You're exhausted. You need food. You need rest. Now, you would think an angel of the Lord speaking to a depressed prophet would come from God and say, Thus saith the Lord, why do you doubt me? Get back on the stick. But no, it's like, you need something to eat. You need to step back. You need to rest. Go take a walk. You need to recollect your strength. So the Bible is, is far more multidimensional, I think, than sometimes we realize. Real Christianity accounts for the complexity of things. Sometimes it feels like secular medicine has just one option. Take a pill. 
It's brain chemistry. It's all clinical. Moralistic Christianity or faith will sometimes reduce it in the same way. Just, just repent. Just go through the list of things and get it done. And then there's another view that says you just go lie on the therapist's couch and talk it through. And the problem is you do have a moral nature. And you do have a physical body. And you do have a spiritual nature. And you do have emotions. And, and you need all of those things. And in the end, it doesn't matter what triggers that state of despondency. It doesn't matter what started it. Once you're into it, all of those aspects are in play. For all of those reasons, we get downcast and to deal with them, we need to be able to say, I need the fellowship of, of brothers and sisters who can encourage me and support me. And yes, pray for me in faith. I need to work on my diet. I need better sleep habits. I I need to think about exercise. I need to pray, even when prayer is hard. And yes, I need to go see my doctor. You know what? Because pharmaceuticals may not be the whole solution, but maybe, maybe they're part of the solution, right? And if they could get you 33% of the way there, you could do the other two-thirds. We wouldn't ever tell somebody who just got a cancer diagnosis, forego all chemotherapy and pray your way through. Why do we do this? You are physical. You are spiritual. You are emotional. You are moral. We're going to talk a little bit more about the cures in just a minute, but underneath all of those triggers, those three things, I want to draw to your attention the the bedrock issue. And I've been through this passage lots of times. So have you. I know you've read this. This is a cherished psalm. But but I'd love to draw it out through the work of a Hebrew scholar, a man named Robert Alter, who said about halfway through the psalm, the writer does something really unusual, quite remarkable. That little verse that says, why are you so downcast? Put your hope in God. My soul is cast down. Therefore, I will remember you. You have parallel expressions. I, first person, I will remember you. My soul is downcast. Still a first person. Here's what's happening, Alter says. In Hebrew, it's possible to take a word and intensify it. We don't have quite the same thing in English. When you intensify it, you change its meaning. For example, you could take the Hebrew word for concern. If you intensify it, it means to be frightened, to be terrified. It's a different meaning entirely. You take the little word I, I will remember. You put it on steroids, you intensify it. You get my soul, my deepest, most intrinsically heartfelt self, my soul. Is downcast. It needs God. I'm looking for something that I just. I can't satisfy. T.S. Lewis as he often did. Said something pretty wise about this. That most people if they really learned how to look into their own hearts. Would know what it is they want. And they would know acutely that it's something that cannot be found entirely in this world. There's all sorts of things, Lewis said, in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never hold their promise. And so the longings that arise inside of us when we first fall in love, first think about some foreign country, 
first take up some new subject that excites us. These are longings which no marriage, no travel, and no learning can really satisfy. You may not believe in God at all. You're wondering still why it is you're discontent. Here's the reason. The core of your being. Oh my soul. I thirst for something that cannot be satisfied here. In all of my pursuits, the love I'm looking for in my relationships, I can never fully be satisfied. Why is it? Because that's just how we were made. We were made for Him. And without Him, there's a part of us that will always feel unmade. Our hearts are restless, that famous expression of Augustine, until they rest in thee. And sometimes when the awareness of that restlessness, when it comes fully to light, when it gets through, boy, the despair that comes, it's palpable. Let's spend a few minutes and talk about cure, though. I don't want to leave you there and send out that, boy, I'm so glad I came to church. That was awful. Yeah, but... You're, you're in the middle of one of these downcast situations, especially this kind, where you really sense that God just doesn't feel real to you at all. I want to give you three possible ways of addressing it. And, and let me say, too, these are in addition to the awareness that sometimes there's stuff we need to do outside of the realm of what the church teaches. Meaning, if you come to me and say, I've just been diagnosed with diabetes, we're going to pray about that. We, we can even talk about lifestyle changes. And then I'm going to say, go to your family doctor. Get the prescription for insulin if that's what you need. So there are things beyond this. But let's talk about what's within the purview of God's word and, and recognize that there's stuff that you need to do. And to be really honest, and, and it's an honesty that comes in having worked through several seasons of absolute despondency in my own life. These are hard. These are really hard. And I'm not going to pretend they're not. And they're not going to come quickly for you. But after years of working at them, I guarantee you, I promise you, they work. Here's the first one. You can definitely do this. I know it's hard, but you need to do it. You pray when you don't feel like it. You see why that's hard? Right? But what is it the psalmist says over and over again? I pour out my soul. These things I remember, I pour up my soul, even though I'm downcast, I'm still, I'm remembering you. He's talking to God, even though God doesn't feel real to him. He's intensely and reflectively and consistently praying. God may not be real, but he's praying anyway. If God is not real to you, go and pray to him about the fact that he doesn't feel real. And there's going to be moments when you feel like you're talking to a paint chip up in the corner of the room. and That's okay, just keep praying. If you're prayerless, go and pray about being prayerless. If you're angry at God, go and pray about being angry. He's big enough. He can handle that. If he doesn't feel real to you and you actually go and you keep talking with you, something's going to happen that wouldn't happen if you stopped praying. Is that uh, if you stop doing that, he's going to stay unreal ten times longer. Think of it this way. It's a, it's a little bit like opening your eyes in a darkened room. You open them first up and you don't see anything but blackness. But the longer you leave them open, the more they adjust and the silhouettes of what's in the room around you begin to appear. If you just close them right up again, you would never notice that. 
One of the simplest and most practical things you can do. I know it's not easy. I know. But this is the way forward. No substitute. You pour out your soul. Keep praying. Pray because you don't feel like it. Don't stop because the feeling is gone. Here's the second suggestion. Challenge your hopes. This really is the heart of the Psalms. This is the key to the whole thing. If you read it through carefully, there's these three stanzas. Each stanza ends with a refrain. Each refrain gets a little bit more hopeful. What's going on here? He says again, My soul, why are you downcast, disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him. Not real, but I'm praising Him just the same. My Savior and my God does it three times. What's going on? He's talking to himself. Can you hear the inner dialogue? He's speaking to himself, not just listening to himself. That's important. You need to listen to yourself. We need to be in touch with what's going on inside. You need to know if you're angry. You need to know if you're scared. But if all you do is listen, you're dead meat. I mean, he doesn't stop just at listening. He talks back to himself. And notice he's not just talking about his feelings. Hey, buck up. Stop feeling so bad. I mean, that You could do that. But that's a notoriously bad strategy. Just try and squelch your feelings. They, they just leak out in other places. What he's talking to himself is, he's not talking about emotions. He's talking about his hopes. So, so often, what we feel is rooted in our hopes. What is it we hope in for our happiness, our security, our significance? Let me give you an example. You've listened to yourself. Now it's time to talk back. You say, self, self, wait a minute. Why are you so afraid? What is it that you're afraid of losing? Why is that thing you're afraid of losing so important to you? Why do you feel like you could never experience life joyfully without it? Why is it that you think God is not enough for you? Why should I give that thing I'm afraid of losing so much control in my life? You see, what are you doing? You're, you're looking at your hopes. What have you put your hope in? Have you really rested your happiness, your security, your significance, your self-worth in that? The psalmist isn't just listening to himself. He's talking to himself. Change your hopes. Hope in God. Something else may have changed in your circumstances over here. But that's okay because God is above your circumstances. Hope in God. And if you do that, your feelings start to heal. And here's how. This is the third point. They heal through that comfort that comes with, that's a beautiful word, the unconditional or the faithfulness or the love of God. It says in verse 6, My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. Verse 8, By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. A beautiful thought, isn't it? We gather together week by week. We sing our songs to God. Imagine God singing over you. The word that's embedded there, the word hesed, this unconditional committed love, this no matter what love, is, is what the psalmist unleashes to begin to heal himself. First he takes himself by the hand, and maybe it's not soothing, he's talking to himself. He says, self, 
you need to get clear on what your hope is. But, but then he takes himself warmly and gently and he comforts himself with the abiding, unconditional love of God. And I need to say that, that if you were living in the world of that psalm writer, the world of the Old Testament, the unconditional love of God would be absolutely inexplicable. I mean, you get a sense of how, how hard it must have been to understand. Because on the one hand, they, they would read and they would hear, I will hold the guilty accountable for their sins. No one can look at my face and live. You must not walk into the tabernacle or I'll kill you. Touch the mountain because you're a sinner and I'm holy and you will surely die. All of that. But then over here, but I love you. And I'm committed to you no matter what. How do those two things possibly work together? If you're an Old Testament believer, there was almost no way to know. But in the New Testament, we absolutely know. We know because Jesus goes to the cross and he says two things that are absolutely germane to us today. You remember what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abandonment. God doesn't feel real. He's not present. He's not there anymore. The same despondency. And then he says, I thirst. The soul pants for streams of living water. I thirst. I mean, clearly his body was dehydrated, but, but this isn't just physical thirst. This is cosmic thirst. The thirst that comes from being completely cut off from God. Jesus knew it. Just right there at the bottom, in the pit of despondency, he knew it. And he healed it. That's the cross. He knew it. And he healed it. And because of the cross, the ability for God to love us unconditionally begins to make sense, comes into focus. You hold on to that assurance, and slowly, gently, you find the darkness starts to lift. The sense of God's absence starts to drift. And when it's over, you will be holier and happier and deeper and wiser than you ever were before. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Father, for giving us this word from Scripture. Thank you for the therapy that's there the gentleness, the good news, the honesty, for the description of the condition, the prescription, the diagnosis. We ask that you would help us to apply the cure. It's going to be hard, Lord, but we believe we can do it, not just in our own strength, but through the strength of your Spirit at work within us. But mostly, God, this morning, we just want to thank you that you make it available to us this great medicine, this great hope because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, it's only in Him and only through Him that we emerge from the dark clouds to the bright hope of new dawn and claim mercy that's fresh each new day. So there's power when we're able to say together that we pray in His name Amen.